Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. God. Well, good morning. My name is Jonathan. I'm an elder here at Christ City Kitsilano. Uh, let us pray. Father, I need your help this morning. We all need your help. So, Father, would you lift our eyes that we might see you for who you are. Help us to hear your word. Would you help me to preach your word? Not out of my own strength or might, but by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 1 of the psalm that Emelina just read for us, the psalmist asks a, a very important question. From where does my help come? From where does my help come? If we are honest, we all need help. Even the most ardent individualist is dependent upon the knowledge necessary to survive on their own. We are born helpless. We need help to grow and to learn. And so the psalmist's question pierces through layers and layers of self-sufficiency and pride. The psalmist prompts us to consider, where does my help come? Where does my help come from? What a humbling and disarming question. As many of you know, this has been a very, very busy season for me and my family. Competing priorities of family, of work, of school, of ministry, they all vie for our time. And it's easy in these busy seasons uh, to kind of drift into self-sufficiency and pride. Subtly, of course, maybe even subconsciously. Small compromises in the name of efficiency. It's remarkably easy, for instance, um, for me anyway, to confuse studying the Bible with spending quality devotional time with the Lord. Help? No thanks. I can juggle it on my own. Thank you very much. My help comes from me. But then things begin to unravel. You know, the, the week before last uh, was actually a really eventful uh, week. It was an unusually eventful week for us. We attended the funeral of a close friend's stillborn daughter. And the next day, our car was broken into. 
The rear window smashed a worthless bag of children's shoes that was destined for, for donation, stolen for our troubles. Carefully laid plans smattered to pieces. And on Wednesday, we were fixing the said car. To boot, in the days leading up to all of this, we've had a few sleepless nights. We attended a wedding. We entertained out-of-town family, attended two barbecues, the church one and a family one. It's amazing. We still actually managed to attend the 65th birthday of my father-in-law, which was actually a big family reunion. Help? No, no, let's be stoic about this. I'm, I'm okay. Well, by Thursday night of that week, I was not okay. In fact, I was in a foul mood. I was severely discouraged. I was anxious, in tears, curled up on my couch, having a really big pity party, and believing a handful of cleverly placed lies that had begun to creep into my head. Preposterous lies that in the condition of my twisted heart felt true, even though it wasn't. Lies like, I'm almost ashamed to say this, lies like, I, I have no friends, no one loves me, kept replaying over and over and over in my head. You know, in hindsight, uh, it seems so obvious Like when we fail to know where our help comes from, we inevitably seek help from ourselves. We think that we are self-sufficient and we end up worshiping the creature that is ourselves rather than the creator. By God's grace, on Friday morning that that week, I must have um, remembered the glimpses of Brandt's sermon on community and discipleship. I, I decided to... I decided to use Fred's favorite uh, means of uh, reaching out for help, and I texted a whole bunch of friends asking for prayer and encouragement. You know, to be really honest, that actually wasn't easy. The irony of texting your, your friends with thoughts and telling them that you have thoughts about having no friends is, is not lost on me. <laughs> So many of you were so gracious. You texted back prayers, words of encouragement, scripture. One of my dear friends simply offered this psalm, Psalm 121, as encouragement. And the question in this psalm was both encouraging as it was piercing. Where does my help come from? In our modern-day vernacular, you know, the word help has so many connotations, and so it's worth kind of just quickly teasing out some of these. It can mean the hired help. You know, we tend to think of it as assistance, a service rendered in order to make it easier for someone to do something. I once took a pile of laundry to the laundromat for extra assistance to clear the burden of laundry that had piled up in our house. Another modern-day connotation of help means to refer to, uh, to take something without Permission, as in she helped herself to a cookie. Or we use it in terms of something that we cannot avoid, as in he couldn't help but laugh. But though these meanings 
may represent aspects of the word help. None of these definitions is really what the psalmist is talking about. Help, the word ezer in Hebrew, refers to a type of help that meets a need. It is help in the, in the purest sense, received only in humility. A sense that this help is one that is able, that has power, that protects, that gives aid to our greatest need. My aim this morning is really simple. This is a very pastoral sermon. It is for you as well as it is for me. My aim this morning as we ponder this question, where does my help come from, is to remind you that our help, our Lord, is our true help. And he knows our true need. Our Lord is our true help. And he knows our true need. We'll look at this in three ways. First, we'll consider the, the historical context of the psalm. Why, why, did, why did the psalmist write the way he wrote? Second, we'll consider two theological implications of this psalm. And third, we'll, we'll look at how it is relevant to you today, to us today. We'll consider what is our true need and where is our true help. So, let's dive in. First, the historical context. Psalm 121 is part of a series of psalms that is called the Psalms, the Songs of Ascent. Traditionally, this has referred to songs that pilgrims would sing as they made their ascent to Jerusalem to worship. Pilgrims rightly desired to, in fact, they were commanded to in Deuteronomy 16.16 to, to go to Jerusalem three times a year in order to observe the religious feasts. They would travel along dangerous roads and pathways. You know, maybe you can kind of imagine this. Imagine like you're walking on the road to Jerusalem and you're a pilgrim and you're seeing Jerusalem on a hill far away. And the psalmist writes, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? Pilgrims would not only see their, their destination, but they would contemplate as they looked upon that and remember the covenant that God made with his people, that God promised his people of care, of protection, of provision as they walked faithfully with him. Or perhaps, as some commentators have noted, that they would look upon these hills with a bit of fear. And certainly there is biblical justification for this. You know, they, these hills were not safe places. They were where the bandits and robbers would hang out. In Luke 10.30, for instance, Jesus describes in the parable of the Good Samaritan, a man who went from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, who stripped and beat him, leaving him half dead. And so to say that the journey through the hills surrounding Jerusalem were dangerous is no understatement. There existed some real uh, perils of travel. And if robbers and bandits were not enough, there was the dry and hot climate of the, of the Middle East, the rough terrain of traveling mountains, but it in itself present a hazard. Pilgrims would rightly long for protection over them as they traveled. They sought journey mercies as they went about their pilgrimage. 
I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? The psalmist answers his own question in verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You see, the psalmist knows that his help is not merely in generalities, but is in the Lord. You know, in Kitsilano, in Vancouver, we are a, a spiritual city. It's, it's popular in our postmodern New Age world to ascribe, to ask for help of things of a force greater than us. You might hear the phrase, you know, I could really use some help from the universe right now. How many of you have heard that? And famously, the word universe is left undefined, as if some sort of collective wisdom could provide help. But the psalmist in Psalm 121 is not merely referring to generalities. He's not even referring to the hills, nor the earth, nor even the universe. In fact, he is not referring to any created thing. He refers to the personal and specific Lord, the God who made heaven and earth. Let's just pause to consider this. The God who made heaven and earth, if indeed we believe the God of the Bible, He is the one that made the heaven and the earth. He is our creator, the sustainer, the provider. And like I've often quoted from Hebrews 1.3, he is, he is the one that upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the God who loves us, who knows us, who suffered for us, who cares for us. The implications are this. If God made the heavens and the earth, he certainly can help us. How does he help? Well, well, the psalmist continues, and I'm glad we've got the text up here so you can follow along. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. You know, in the ancient days, a sleeping God was one who was considered to be unresponsive to the, to the needs or the prayers of a person calling out for help. A common cry of the Babylonian worshiper, for instance, was how long his God was to sleep. And so it is significant that the psalmist writes that God who made heaven and earth never sleeps. He is our help all the time. He keeps watch over the pilgrims who travels uncertain paths day and night. I don't know about you. I am so encouraged that God never sleeps. Aren't you encouraged? We don't have to wait until he is awake to call upon him. We don't have to wait for his office hours. Does it not encourage you that, that he has given us the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom you receive in Christ? who dwells in you 24-7. Not only that, he, uh, he's always actively working for his glory 
and you're good, as it says in Romans 8.28, despite what circumstances may lie. Jesus famously said in John 5.17, My Father is working until now, and I am working. The image of a, uh, of a God who, who never sleeps should actually evoke, should remind us of the tauntings of Elijah to the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. How many of you know that story? You may recall that Elijah and 400 prof- 450 prophets of Baal had a bit of a competition. Verses 23 and 24 of 1 Kings 18 highlights this. Let two bulls be given to us and let them, the people, choose one bull for themselves and cut it to pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I, Elijah, will call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, He is God. And what do they do? So the prophets of Baal, they... they they agreed to this. <laughs> and, and it reads in verse 27, And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Maybe he's musing or relieving himself. Maybe he's on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Likewise, it should remind us of the incident in Gethsemane when the disciples fell asleep as Jesus was praying, yielding to the weakness of the flesh. But God is one who never slumbers nor sleeps, and so in him we can find our true rest. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, God who never slumbers nor sleeps. But not only is he the maker of heaven and earth, and not only does he not slumber nor sleeps, he is our keeper. In fact, if you read through the psalm, you'll notice that the psalmist uses the word keeps in verses 4, 5, 7, and 8. It it evokes this image of God who guards us, who holds us. As pilgrims who travel down the Jordan Valley turn uh, turn west, sorry, if they travel down the the Jordan Valley southwards and then turn turn west to ascend the deep, the steep roadway toward Jerusalem, the sun would be on their left side. And therefore, the Lord was the shade on their right hand where comfort and protection from the scorching heat would be felt. Similarly, the psalmist writes of the Lord who keeps the pilgrim from the moon by night. Now, what does he, what does he mean by that? In ancient textbooks, uh, especially medical textbooks, prolonged exposure to the moon was actually considered a health risk. Um, it had something to do with the moon god and so on and so forth. And uh, in fact, our English terms, moonstruck and lunatic, uh, come from this belief. And so some of that stuff is actually pervaded even to today. 
The point here is that God keeps us day and night. He keeps us. He keeps all of his people. He doesn't let our foot be moved. He looks after our physical well-being and our mental well-being. He looks after our spiritual well-being. So even if you are a lunatic, he looks after you. Consider again what he says. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. We sung that this morning, didn't we? It is finished. He has done it. What beautiful promises that the psalmist writes assuring that his people, his people that God not only keeps his people in the past, but in their future. And indeed, this promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who forgave our sin by dying on the cross for our sake. Because we've been united to Christ, Hebrews 13, 5-8 tells us that the Lord is our helper. We shall not fear that he shall never leave or forsake us. Now, the psalmist is actually so convincing in this language that uh, it is possible that we can fall into kind of two theological pitfalls. And so I just want to highlight that for you a little bit this morning. And both of these pitfalls, if you think of it like, a, like ditches on the side of the road, both of these pitfalls have to do with failing to see this psalm in light of the greater biblical narrative. If you're following along in my outline, this is point number two, theological implications. So the first ditch that we could fall into is that it almost appears as if the psalmist is saying that nothing bad will ever befall us. Nothing bad will ever come about. But look, let's be real here. (laughs) If you've lived any length of time, you know that this is not true. People die. People fall sick. People have mental illnesses. People turn away from the Lord. Bad things do happen. And so immediately the question becomes, well, how do we reconcile the passages like Psalm 121 that speak so strongly of God who keeps us from evil with the reality of living in a sinful, fallen world? Very quickly, the second ditch, the second danger is that we can become so focused on the personal nature of what the psalmist is saying here that we forget that that God uses means. Your relationship with God is not just me and my buddy Jesus. Your relationship encompasses God's people. God keeps Israel, verse 4. In New Covenant language, God keeps the church. It encompasses community. How do we temper the strong use of the word you in the psalm with the call of community that we have just been talking about for the last few weeks out of Ephesians 4? Well, let's address the first pitfall, the first ditch. D.A. Carson, the author of a book called How Long, O Lord? Reflections on Suffering and Evil, speaks of this very tension that exists in the Bible. 
And right in the opening chapter, he describes case after case after case of bad things. And asks the question after each one, where is God? Christ City, I know we're not immune to this. I have grieved with you as we've mourned the death of a child. As we've experienced the pain of parental divorce. Suffer the horrors of mental illness. Endure the pain, the uncertainty of unknown diagnosis, of uncertain futures, of sudden wrist injuries, of unexpected and perhaps unwelcome concussions. A tempting question to ask in such times is, where is God? Carson implores us to examine these matters, to reconcile them before tragedy hits, lest our belief system crumbles. So what should we do when we read passages like Psalm 121? Take a step back. Look at things in light of the the whole biblical narrative. Consider how, how Joseph might have sung this psalm as he sat wallowing in the pit after his brothers threw him in, left him for dead, and then after he was sold as a slave to Egypt, how is he able to say, the Lord will keep you from all evil? He will keep your life. For those of you who might not be familiar with the story of Joseph, let me just summarize really quick. His brothers had betrayed him. him They threw him into a pit as if for dead. In fact, they were almost going to kill him. And then they decided to change their mind. They sold him to passing traders as a slave. And years later, Joseph rose in prominence in Egypt. And during a famine, his brothers came back and, and he welcomed them and blessed them with the abundance of food stores. So how is this Joseph, how is Joseph of the Bible able to stay to say, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Well, of course, Joseph answers that very question himself. In Genesis fifty twenty, he famously says, As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Or consider how an Israelite in the time of Moses might have sung the psalm leading up to the Exodus. You know, I kind of wonder what the Israelites thought as they were walking through the, the um, sorry, as they, as they were hastily putting shed blood on the doorposts as the angel of the Lord passed by. Or how about when the Israelites were wandering through the desert, experiencing that scorching heat? Would they have sung, The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night? Indeed, we know now that they could. For without the Passover and without the Exodus, without them reaching the promised land, Israel would never uh, know the promised land and they would still be enslaved in Egypt. When we take a step back, we realize that in light of the greater biblical narrative, God is our ever-present help. He has solved our greatest need. The Bible tells us that we are created to image God. We are created to bring Him glory, to honor Him in all things, Romans 1.21. And yet we have failed to do that. We claim to be wise, 
yet we became fools, worshipping the created rather than the creator. The Bible tells us that our greatest problem is sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And in our sin, we're actually unable to rescue ourselves. We are depraved. We are a crooked generation. We are full of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, unable to please or honor God. That comes from Romans 1, 29 to 30. We are indeed helpless, despite our propensity to think that we can help ourselves. And God rightly and justly judges the wicked. He rightly and justly condemns those who sin. He condemns them to hell, an eternal separation from him. And so how can we sing, the Lord will keep you from all evil, he will keep your life? The answer, of course, is that God himself, through sending his son, Jesus, is our true help. Consider how Jesus might have sung this psalm as he lay in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he contemplated his ascent to the, to the hill of Calvary, where he would meet his fate on a Roman cross. Might he have cried out, where does my help come from? And surely God knew his greatest need and our greatest need. And so despite the evil that would be perpetrated upon the Son of God, crucifying him, murdering him on a, on a Roman cross, God would employ evil to defeat evil itself. For in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see ultimately how the psalmist is able to say that he will keep your life. On it, Jesus bore our sins. He satisfied God's righteous wrath, our penalty, so that he might be our great shepherd who keeps our going out and our coming in for all of eternity. Here is the contrast, friends, of those who know Jesus and those who do not. Those who know Jesus have hope despite our circumstances, because we know that if God did not spare even his own son to die on the cross, to solve our greatest need, he will surely walk with us through the troubles. We are a people who have a confident and an assured hope. In fact, as Christians, we, we have true help. How we act through these tragic events, even just a bad week like I had uh, the week before last, how we act through these can serve as a, as a really good diagnostic tool. Indeed, instead of getting mired in our emotions 
and feeling resigned to, the, to feeling helpless, we actually have help because we have hope. We can see our circumstances in light of the a whole biblical narrative, in light of all of redemption. Which brings me to the second theological implications, the other side of the ditch, the, the road, the other ditch. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? God, God uses means to be our help. He employed the cross, an execution device. And because of that cross, God made a way for a people to be chosen for himself. God employed the prophets and the apostles who, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote the revelation that we read today, including this psalm. God also employs you, brothers and sisters, the church, the body of Christ, to be a means of grace and to be a means of help to each other. As you saw in my opening illustration, God used community to be a means of grace to me, and I, in turn, for them. It is right to say that we who are created in the image of God, redeemed to reflect Christ, can be the means by which God uses to remind us of the one who is our true help, who is able to know us, love us, and care for us fully. Friends, I hope you have experienced this enough here at Christ City to know that this type of help does not just mean being nice to one another. Help comes in many forms. Although it has an undergirding of a gospel-believing, Christ-reflecting love, this exhibits itself in things like exhortation, Hebrews 3, speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, reminding one another of the true helper. Sometimes this means doing nice things for one another. But it can also look like this. It can look like texting one another to check in, demonstrating care dispensing generous hospitality, calling another to repentance, discerning wisdom, exhorting one another to believe. The person in community responds to this question, where does my help come from? Knowing, not just intellectually, but knowing intimately that our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, through the means of the body of Christ. I'm almost done. Third point, practical implications. Let's bring it home. I've given you some of the historical context of this psalm. And we've looked at some of the theological implications. But what are the practical implications of a text like this? How do you sing this psalm? Do you sing this song in faith, believing that God is your keeper and our true help? Not only in the past, but also in the future? Do you believe that God indeed is your keeper? That he is your true help? Do you believe that God understands you? That he understands your true needs? 
better than even yourself? Do you believe that God provides the means of His church to bring about His help? Where does your help come from? I said at the beginning of this message that our Lord is our true help and He knows our true need. And it is in that light that we must view our present circumstances that he must that we must keep in mind when we read this psalm what is our greatest need our greatest need is to know and feel confident in the security of our maker not for this life but for eternity and when we realize that god forsakes nothing not even his own son in order that he might help us in this greatest need, that we might put our confidence and our trust in him, then you realize that our greatest need has nothing to do with our temporal needs of this earth, but everything to do with the eternal realities of the world to come. And so this is how we must view our day-to-day struggles in life. Look up. Remember that God is our help. Let me conclude by saying this. The Bible tells of a new Jerusalem at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21. One that will be the eternal holy city. One in which God will dwell with his saints. And in the city of God, We will be his people, and God himself will be with us. He will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. Neither shall shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you are on a pilgrimage. You are on a journey toward the new Jerusalem toward that holy city. As you lift your eyes to the hills, where does your help come from? Christian, do you know this morning that your help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth? And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, I know there are some here that are not yet. To you I say this. If you're honest with where your heart is, you recognize that you too need help. So my challenge to you this morning is, will you lay aside your control, repent of your self-sufficiency, and trust in the true help that comes from knowing Jesus our Lord? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.